at the risk of sounding repetitive, each of the consecutive visions of the Revelation reveals to us something about the present church age that we're living in. Each vision teaches us something about the end of the age that hasn't happened yet. And each vision sets before us a picture of what will be the eternal state, both of the wicked and of the righteous. Now at the same time, the book that we're studying is not entitled The Revelation of Something About the Present Church Age, Something About the End of the Age, and Something of the Eternal State. The book is entitled The Revelation of Jesus Christ. How is that? Well, we have to be reminded that it was Christ who's ransomed this church by His blood. Christ continues even now by His own Holy Spirit to to dwell in and with His church, to walk with His churches and preserve His church in their local manifestation, the local church. It's Christ who's going to return in power and glory to destroy the enemies of His church, to bring His people to be with Himself. It's Christ Himself who's actually going to be the very glory of our eternal inheritance. What this epistle is doing is it's revealing to us time and time again that Christ is the only hope of every individual believer and of every local church. He's all we have. And so what we do is we come to it week after week and what we're we're hoping to hear as it was referenced many times in the early chapters, what the Spirit says to the churches. The Spirit of who? The Spirit of Christ. He's speaking to His churches through His Word. It's a revelation from Him, of Him, to us. Because as we said many times, if we can fix our eyes upon who He is and what He's done, if we can hear what He has to say to us, that's what we need. We do not need to know all of the details of the future. We need to know Him. So, in verses 1-6 to of this chapter, we've been looking at the present church age, the time in which we lived through the work of Christ, culminating in His death and resurrection, Satan has been bound. We saw that in verses 1-3, to which means he cannot stop the gospel from going forth to the nations. Now remember, that happened in his life and death, and here we are as evidence that the gospel has not been stopped. He has not been able to thwart the plans of God, the promises from ancient times that people from all of the nations would come and worship Christ. We're evidence. We're living proof that the promise has been fulfilled, that the Word is going forth. He's bound, which means he can't mount an attack which will prevail against the church. And we saw last week those saints who die in the present age, in, in whatever manner, whether it be a martyr's death or whether it be uh, dying of old age, whether it be in a car accident, whether it be a, 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 an illness that takes you in the prime of your life, whatever the circumstance might be, if you're a Christian you pass immediately into the presence of this Christ. Christ who makes the kindness of David towards Mephibosheth look like, look like criminal behavior. We go straight to be with Him. How, when, we were, when He was reading that story, and that's one of my favorite chapters in Scripture. How many of us don't want to meet David? I mean, look how kind He is. Look what He's doing. Christ is, is the greater, the supreme David. But this age is not going to continue forever. And the New Testament repeatedly reminds us 
of what the Scriptures call the age to come, which means the present age has to come to an end. And so here, beginning in verse 7, we're going to move into a description of the end of all things. Now previously we've called this the end time judgment, I-N, not E-N-D, in order to sort of set it over against what we also call the judgment, eternal judgment in hell. These are different. We know from Scripture that Christ will return physically, bodily to the earth. Christ will manifest a public victory over His enemies. He will vindicate His people and His Father before the eyes of all men. In His return and conquest, the present elements, the created elements, are going to go undergo some sort of disillusion, whether they be completely replaced or purged and remade. There's debate, but in, in, in any sense, the point is to make an eternal dwelling place for God and His people. Uh, a, 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 an earth that can facilitate Almighty God and glorified sons of God, which this earth couldn't contain that glory. And all of that precedes, comes before what we call the eternal state in which the wicked will perish eternally in hell and the righteous will dwell in the presence of the Lord forever. So there is sort of a a process that the Scriptures Give us, when we say the end of all things, the, or the end time judgment, we're talking about that. That, that end that's going to precede the eternal state. We're talking about how this present evil age will be brought to an end and the age to come is ushered in. Again, Scripture has a lot to say of, uh, about this. Most of the things that it says is revealed in what is often uh, considered e- apocalyptic or, or at least prophetic language. And so determining the exact manner and process of of how all of this is going to come to pass is difficult. And And I believe that very truth lets us know that that ought not to be our main concern. And it's definitely not our main concern in these these words here. One great blessing that we do have, according to the book of Hebrews, is that even now, when we gather as an assembly, as, as the church and we worship our God together, and the Spirit of Christ is present with us, we are here able to taste the powers of the age to come in the assembly. That age is not here yet, but we can taste something of it even here. Heaven breaks into time when the church gathers, which is just an amazing thought. Now one hermeneutical hurdle in the section that we're about to read concerns what we discussed last Lord's Day specifically with regard to the relationship between Christ's final return and judgment and the millennium or the 1,000 years. If we were reading the book of the Revelation as purely chronological, for example, chapter 2 follows chapter 1 historically. Chapter 3 follows chapter 2. Chapter 4 comes next. Then chapter 5 and so on. If, If that's how we're reading the book then we would understand that chapter 20 in history, in the way that it unfolds in history, would follow chapter 19. And chapter 19, historically, chronologically, would come first. Now, in chapter 19, we read very clearly of the return of Christ in judgment. The rider on the white horse with a a two-edged sword coming from his mouth, striking down the nations. We've already seen that happen, which would mean, if we're reading chronologically, chapter 20 
the only chapter that contains a reference to the thousand years, the millennium, follows Christ's return, which would make Christ's return pre-millennial, right? Before 1,000, if that's the way we were reading the book. But if the revelation is not meant to be read as purely chronological, but as a series of progressive, parallel recapitulations of, of the same things in history, then we're not constrained to see chapter 20 as following chapter 19 chronologically in history. And that's we're, we've been reading it in that second way, which I believe is the proper way. And what I want you to see today specifically is that the battle that we read about in chapter 19, verses 11 to 21 is the same battle that's being described here in chapter 20, verses 7 to 10. There are differences, which is the very reason why we have parallel, recapitulated views. It's the same reason that we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Not that they contradict, but they give us very angles of the same life of Christ. Here we have these these parallel visions, not to contradict, but to give us various angles of the same thing. Each of these visions is giving us another side of the story, if you will. But it's the same vision. So in chapter 20, verses 7 to 10, we're seeing the same thing that we saw in chapter 19, 11 to 21, from a different angle. In 19, the central figure and focus was Christ Himself a long and very illustrative description of Christ, riding on the white horse, a sword coming out of His mouth, a robe dipped in blood, a name written on His thigh, etc. Just a very vivid description. Here, again, it's the same vision, but the angle has shifted to where now the central focal point is not Christ, but the enemies. Of Christ, and in particular, Satan himself. We're seeing how this battle works out for the devil, Satan. And so I've divided it up into, again, three headings, and they're all dealing with Satan. Satan's certain release, number one, Satan's final ascent, and Satan's ultimate doom. So, number one, Satan's certain release. We talked last week about optimism, and as optimistic as we ought to be about the prospects of the present age, about the advance and movement of the gospel into the nations, and and even as optimistic as we ought to be about our placement at the moment of death, we also have to deal honestly with what God has revealed about how the present age is going to come to its conclusion. And a part of that plan is a relaxing of the restraints that have been placed upon Satan. Remember again that there was a twofold way, if, if we want to think in these terms, of, of the binding of Satan. His accusatory power in the heavens has been destroyed by the work of Christ. He can no longer bring an accusation against the elect of God. And secondly, through the ascension of uh, and, and, and or the resurrection and ascension of Christ, and then his sending of the Holy Spirit to empower the church, the gospel is now being sent forth into the nations that were once left in their blindness. That's how we ought to think of the binding of Satan. Not necessarily what it looks like for a dragon to wear a collar with a chain on it, but the opposite side, the the positive work that God's doing amongst the nations. In those ways, Satan is bound. He's unable to mount a global assault upon the church. The gates of hell cannot and will not prevail against the church. 
And the 1,000 years of this chapter, remember it's meant to paint a picture of the, of the great gospel age with, with bright and joy-inducing and encouraging colors. When we consider the sufferings and trials that the people of God will face, it's 1,260 days. A time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years. We, we, we can think of that. We can see the end of three and a half years. Even if we, you buy a car uh, with, with a 60-month payoff rate, you're, you're already thinking, I've got this. Five years, that's, that, that's nothing. Three and a half years would be even less. When we consider the triumph of Christ and the binding of Satan, the, the power of the gospel going forth, the hope that we have of reigning with Christ, in this book we think in terms of a thousand years. You can't imagine a thousand years. Our country is not even 300 years old. A thousand years. An an indescribable length of time. Unimaginable. A thousand years. That's that's the 1,000 years. But notice here in verse 7, And when the thousand years are ended or completed. Now this is a true chronological time stamp even though it does use symbolic language. Not that we know exactly when this is going to be, but we do know that the present age is going to come to an end. We don't start somewhere and begin to count to a thousand, but we know that the thousand years, this symbolic representation of the church age, will come to a completion. When the thousand years are ended, when the age comes to its end, telos, its goal, what it's, what it's aiming at, what does that imply? First, this age will come to an end. But secondly, God is the one who has determined the end of its completion. God has already decreed the goal that He's aiming at. Not us. He's determined the time. He's fixed it. He knows it. He's working out a plan. And He can see the whole thing. It's going to come to an end. If the 1,000 years is a description of the church age, the age of the Great Commission, if we want to call it that, And the fact that there is a completion of the 1,000 years tells us that the church age or the time of great commission work is going to come to an end. It's going to stop. Revelation 11 verse 7 says, speaking of the two witnesses, another picture of the church, when they have finished their testimony. Well, who knows except God alone when that time will come. Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. There is a a time set for the work of the Great Commission to be performed, the testimony to be born, and it's going to come to an end. Christ set forth a principle in John 9 when He said, We must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Now, setting aside the the context of of His statement there, we could say that there is a general principle here and throughout Scripture that there is a time to work, and then there's a time when there is no working. This is my argument against working a third shift job, by the way. I, the Lord said, there's, you work in the daytime, you sleep at nighttime. But that's, that's not His point. There is a time to work, and there's a time when the work stops. Every one of us, as individuals, we've already been given a predetermined number of days to fulfill. God has already allotted our, our time and our boundaries. He's, he's fixed it. Which means we have a particular time as individuals to labor for Christ. 
We have opportunities, a specific, predetermined set of moments, of seconds, if you will, for gospel witness, for making disciples. We have a a particular time set apart. That will be the time for us to receive the Word with meekness, to be taught the Word, to be discipled ourselves, to to, to grow, to be sanctified by the washing of the water of the Word. We have a time that's going to come to an end, every one of us. And it's the same with the entire church in the present age. There is a time for labor. That time is now. Now is the gospel age, the discipling age, the age of working in the fields which are white for harvest, the fields that belong to Christ. Now is the age of the preaching of the gospel, but also the hearing of the gospel and the nourishing, the building up of the church. That time is going to end. It's going to stop. Not according to our calendars, even though it'll, it'll come on a, a true calendar day, but it's going to come to an end according to God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge. Whenever He says time's up, that means time's up. Now, if we look about us, we would say, well, here we are on the other side of the planet from when these things were, were spoken and written. It seems that the gospel has gone forth to the nations. Now, we do know that there are people groups still left that, that have not heard the gospel, but we, we probably ought to begin to wonder, how close are we? How much time do we have? Bringing that back to our individual application, how much time do I have? That's how we think. How much time do I have? Well, if I live to be 80, I've got this much time. I'm not promised that. Our time is limited. It's set. There's a fixed period of time that God has ordained for the Great Commission work to be done, the the gospel to be preached, and that's going to come to an end. And when that time comes to an end, it doesn't it seems, it doesn't bring an immediate conclusion to time itself, but it leads to what the Bible describes as the release of Satan. Verse 7b, Satan will be released from his prison. Now notice that word released is a passive verb, which means Satan is being acted upon by someone besides himself. He's being released by another In verses 1 to 3, it was the mighty angel, presumably Christ Himself, who seized the dragon and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it by a royal decree. And so I believe it's safe to assume, without very much defense or argument, that the releaser in verse 7 is again Christ Himself. Christ will release Satan. Satan is constrained by the royal prerogatives of King Jesus. Remember, Satan is merely... An angel. Satan is a created being. While Christ is very God of very God. And from the moment of creation, Christ has held the crown rights of dominion over Satan. Christ bound him. Christ destroyed his power. Christ has been for 2,000 years plundering his goods. Christ is going to be the one to release him. That's our Christ, our Messiah, our King, our Lord, our Shepherd, our our Teacher, our Friend, our Elder Brother. Whatever afflictions that might come upon the saints of God upon this earth in the days of Satan's release, we can rest. Not because we know exactly what it's going to look like, but because we know that He is the one. Our Christ is the one who is doing the releasing. He's the chain holder, the, the key holder. 
He's our King. He gave Himself up for us to redeem us for Himself. Whatever comes upon us is coming from His hand and at His decree. But Satan will be released. Satan will be released, it says, from his prison and will come out. Now, remember, the abyss is not a geographical location. Satan is not a physical being. He's an angel, a demon. And so we, we ought not to be looking and watching for a literal dragon to come out of a literal hole somewhere in planet earth. But we should expect an increase in the manifestation of Satan's power amongst the nations of the world, turning them against the people of Christ in a way that is more concerted and expansive than the world has ever seen since Christ's death. Beyond that, in all honesty, it's hard to explain or even imagine what this might entail for the people of God who will be on the earth in that day. We don't know. But we do know Satan will be released. Now we can think comparatively. We can look around the world and see brothers and sisters suffering. And we can say with uh, some bit of, uh, some bit of uh, expectation, it's probably going to be worse than that. Whatever's happening, probably going to be worse. But he will be released. Number two, we see Satan's final ascent. The Bible repeatedly describes Satan's attacks as attempts to ascend the mountain of God and usurp God's place as king over God's kingdom. This is what happened in the Garden of Eden. This was true of Christ. Try to picture, if you can think in, in macro terms, try to just imagine the world on the day that Christ died. We know from the text that we saw several weeks ago, things like the world lay in darkness. There were times of ignorance that covered the globe. The nation of Israel, which was God's covenant kingdom at that point, they were the ones chanting for His crucifixion. The Romans mocked Him and beat Him and crucified Him. His own disciples ran and fled from Him and He hung all alone. In that moment, if you could think of it in those terms, it, it, was, it was almost like he was the only man of faith on the planet and he's hanging on a cross. What hope is there from here? Now we know, of course, that he wasn't truly alone and that there were other believers, but the attack of the enemy was so overwhelming and, and happening in, at so many different levels that it appeared that the light had been completely burnt out. Satan in that moment might have thought, I did it. I scattered every one of those pansies and I got their Lord hanging on a cross. I've got Him. Now we know that this led to His victory. This was the conquering of Him who had the power of death, the devil. That was the last time that such a concerted effort was mounted against Christ and His people. Now there have been great uh, attempts throughout history, but, but that was the last time that we see that this to this kind of extent. And the language of Scripture, I think, indicates that a similar event is going to bring about Christ's ultimate and complete victory at the end of the age. It'll be somehow paralleled to that. And we could use other 
places in Scripture, there, there are these themes. If you pay attention to the Bible, there are these major themes throughout the Scripture that just constantly repeat themselves, all of them pointing to and culminating in what Christ accomplished. Notice that Satan here, it says, will use the nations of the world. Chapter 20, verses 7b through 8a, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations. We saw this in chapter 16. I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle. And remember, that was a bowl of judgment being poured out. God, in an act of judgment, gave Satan release and gave the nations over to deception in order that they might all be assembled together against the church. How can that be judgment? Well, because it was through that that Christ vanquished all of them in one swoop. The nations. He will gather or deceive the nations. And then we have this language. The nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Remember that points us to Ezekiel 38 and 39, which we looked at in in chapter 19. When we examined that battle in chapter 19, we saw numerous parallels to Ezekiel 38 and 39. God Himself being the one who is actively behind the scenes assembling this army to come against His people. These armies were those who were in the uttermost parts of the north, the place of opposition to God and His people. There, there was a call that went out to the birds to come and devour the flesh of the enemies. And remember the purpose was that God's holy name would be made known in the midst of His people as He judged the nations who came against His people. In this account of the same battle, a lot of those details are left out. But... We actually have the words Gog and Magog. So we don't need very many parallels. We have the literal uh, explicit connection made just in case we weren't clear. But it's the same battle. Christ releases Satan in order to assemble the nations. The enemies come in a great horde against the people of God, as we're going to see. What is the purpose? It's that God's holy name would be made known in the midst of His people by judging the nations who have come against His people. Now notice how the battle is described. First, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. First, notice this army, the enemy army. The nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Now this is not a statement about the geometrical shape of the globe upon which we uh, live. As you know, it's, it's symbolic language. You think of a compass, north, south, east, west. It's, the, the point is the whole world in every direction. The nations that are at the four corners of the earth. The nations which encompass the earth. It says their number is like the sand of the sea. Now imagine you're standing on the beach. You walk out to the beach. Your, your feet are close enough to the water that the, the tide comes in and just barely covers the tops of your feet. And you reach down and you scoop up one scoop of sand. And then you look 
one direction down the beach, as far as you can see, sand. Look in the other direction, as far as you can see, sand. You look down at your feet. The water has already filled in that one hole you dug out. It's like it, you didn't even do it. And then you look in your hand and think, how long would it take me to count just these grains of sand? That's a lot. There's a lot of sand. Now, what's the point? Their number is like the sand of the sea. It, it, the point is an inconceivable number. It, it's a number that we, you know is real. In theory, there's, there, there's not an infinite number of grains of sand. In theory, God knows how many there, there are, but, but this number is so large, it, we might say it's unknowably high. A human being could not conceive of this number. Nations from the four corners of the earth, number like the sand of the sea. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth, literally the breadth or the expanse of the earth. In other words, as their battle formation comes, it covers the entire width of the earth. What does this imply? What's the picture? What's the image? The point is, this is a numerically vast army all over Everywhere. Can't count them. Hordes. When we think of hordes, that brings in... We might think of a swarm. Too many to even contemplate without going mad. And then we meet their victims. They surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. That word camp is elsewhere in Scripture translated barracks. It could be like the headquarters, the temporary living quarters of military personnel. In the Old Testament, this word was used for the camp of Israel that they would set up and then they would tear it down as they traveled to follow the presence of the Lord before them. And then they would set it back up. And then they would tear it back down. They would carry it. It was a, a, a mobile place. After they were established in the land of Canaan, this word was used for the tabernacle specifically. It was called the camp of the Lord. Temporary living quarters for military personnel. And then we have the beloved city. In Revelation, remember there are two cities. There's the great city and then there's the holy city. There's Babylon and there's the beloved here, Babylon is the harlot. The church is the true bride of Christ. We have the beloved city, the church. That word beloved is used to mean the, the love of God for a particular object. The beloved city. So what, what do we make of this reference? The camp of the saints in the beloved city. Is it a camp or is it a city? The answer is yes. Because the church is the new Jerusalem. The church is Mount Zion. In the present age, she's the church militant, the church at war, the church in the wilderness. We live as pilgrims and as sojourners in this world. In other words, this army of the world deceived by Satan from the four corners of the earth, their number as the sand of the sea, marching across the expanse of the entire globe, comes and surrounds this little camp. The church is surrounded. The church in Hebrews 12 is called Mount Zion, the assembly, the ecclesia, the church of the firstborn. The church is the mount of assembly 
on the earth. The dwelling place of God in the midst of His people. And so when we see this global Satan-led army surrounding the church, we're seeing again the same thing we saw in chapter 16. They are demonic spirits performing signs. They go abroad to the kings of the whole world, assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty, and they assemble them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Again, Armageddon is not an earthly location. It's a spiritual people. The battle of Armageddon is the final attack upon the people of God. Satan's final attempt to ascend to the far reaches of the north, to usurp God's throne, to destroy God's people, God's temple church. It's the last time. What we're reading about is the last time that the kings of the earth under strong delusion will unite themselves against the Lord's anointed. Satan's final ascent. But then thirdly, notice Satan's ultimate doom. His ultimate doom. What confidence can we have at this point? Four corners of the earth, sand of the sea, an army that covers the the expanse of the world as they surround this little camp of the saints, this little temporary, easy to set up, easy to tear down, dwelling, the barracks of this, this little army, but they surround what, what confidence do we have? Or, or maybe we're gone, maybe this happens in generations to come, but what confidence might those living at that time have if it's, if it's in the days of our children? What confidence can we give them? that, that they, they read this picture. This seems insurmountable. According to Christ's own words, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? It seems that true saints are going to be in the minority when He returns. That the witness of the church will be like a barely flickering lamp. The trampling of the world will have been apparently effective. So, will we have strength to stand? Will Whoever's on the earth in that day, whatever saints there might be, will they have the strength to stand? What confidence can we give them? Listen, the hope of the saints is not in ourselves, but in God. If we are to be strong, we must know our God. What confidence can we have that it's not us? We can't beat this army. It's not possible. But God can As we see in Psalm 2, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. Our hope is in the King who's been sit or sat, set, established, fixed in our midst. That's our hope. Remember what Christ interjected into that vision of the same battle in chapter 16. I didn't read this verse. Verse 15 of chapter 16, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. It sounds insurmountable. It sounds like a washout. You can't do it. In parentheses, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping on his garments, that he may may not go out, about naked and be seen exposed. In other words, it, yes, it does seem insurmountable. You cannot do it. You cannot win. And then it's as if he, like the, the 
father to the sons in the Proverbs, he picks us up and he says, now look at me, behold, I'm coming like a thief. That's all we need to know. Our king who's bound this serpent, who's released this serpent, he is coming. It says they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. If, if you've seen very many battle scenes or, or read the descriptions of battle scenes, you might like this. But notice how this battle plays out. It's very detailed. They surrounded the camp, the camp of the saints in the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Or you might have fire came down from God out of heaven or out of heaven from God. Did you, did you get it? You might have missed it. Let me read it again. The battle, the battle scene. They surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Right there it is. It's a white space right there. And then, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. There's no battle described. Now, does this imply that there will be no hardship, no persecution, no suffering, no death? No. As we've already seen in chapter 17, they'll make war on the Lamb, but He'll kill them. Chapter 11, the beast will make war and kill. We've already seen this battle before. And what happened there? In chapter 19, what do we see? Heaven opens up and tips over at the moment of of impact and our great champion comes with the armies of heaven riding behind Him to our rescue. The point that we have to see is that the battle belongs to the Lord. Always has, always will. Remember, throughout Scripture, this final day is called the day of the Lord. The day of God. The day of His wrath. The time for destroying the destroyers. The great day of God the Almighty. If I come to your house for your birthday party, I'm not coming expecting a gift. Because it's not my day. This is His day. It's not the day for us to be displayed in our great power. It is the day for Him to be made known amongst all peoples and His power to be displayed. It's the day when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, 2 Thessalonians 1.7. Remember that the book we're reading is the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the revelation of the people of, of the Christ. It talks about us to comfort us because of who He is. For the people of God, there is no battle because we have a King who fights our battles. It's Christ Jesus who girds Himself up with strength and fights for us. You men... Perhaps you've tried to imagine the uncontrollable rage that would fill you if you saw your wife surrounded by wicked men who aimed to do her harm. Perhaps you've thought about that, rehearsed that. And you know what you would do. You'd run, you'd, you'd say, excuse me, and you'd squeak, scoot in between them. And you'd say, all right, honey, you, you, let's just stand back to back. And you get those on that side, and I'll get those on this side. Right? Ain't that what you would do? No. No. You would run in, in, in uncontrollable rage and fury, and you would, you would go down bleeding, dying, suffocated, whatever. You would have to die in order to protect your wife. You would not stop without 
complete and utter restraint or death or incapacitation. Now, if we who are evil and who are weak, whose strength is limited, we might think we could fight five men and get in, in the mix and find out we're good for about two and a half or three. We're weak. Our bodies are mortal. But we know we would give everything we could to attempt to do our bride some good. If we would do that, how much more Jesus Christ? He's not weak. He's all strength. He's not mortal. He's immortal. He's loved this bride with an everlasting love. He's going to come in and swoop and rescue. Fire came down from heaven. It says, hearkening back, I believe, to those sacrifices of old when the fire would come down and consume it, it would remind us Again, of Ezekiel 38 and 39, it envisioned the, destructions of God, the destruction of God's enemies as, as a sacrifice devoted to destruction. Not only is there the sweet-smelling aroma of, of the pleasing sacrifice, but the sweet-smelling aroma of the enemies of God wafting up in His nostrils. It was a, a sacrifice to Him. And here is what we see. The fire comes down and consumes His enemies. Christ will return as King, leading the armies of heaven to battle. Christ returns with the sword coming out of His mouth, the word of judgment. He comes as our prophet, and He comes back as our priest, devoting the nations to destruction as an offering to His God. And it is consumed, it is received, it is a, a pleasing thing to the Father. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Them who? The nations from the four corners of the earth, the people that were as of the sand of the sea. These people. Now again, a little bit of a little polemical exercise. If we went back to chapter 19, there was a sword that was going to be used to strike down the nations. In that battle, there were kings, captains, mighty men, horses and riders, all men, free and slave, small and great. Who does that leave? Nobody. That's, that's everybody. That's the way the Bible says everybody. In chapter 20, again, nations at the four corners of the earth, number like the sand of the sea, marching over the broad plain of the earth. Who does that leave? Nobody. That's the way the Bible says everybody. How could these be two separate events or two separate battles if all of the world is involved in both and destroyed in both? can't be. And I would add... To that, how could all of the world be involved in this battle against the saints if all of the world has been Christianized by this point? Back to Luke 18. Will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? What's the context of that? The context is Christ coming to bring justice to His elect who've been crying out to Him day and night. Will He find faith on earth? It will be a camp, a small number. Fire comes down and consumes the sacrifice of our great high priest as evidence from heaven that the Father is pleased with His work. 
And then it says in verse 10 that the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now this brings up another polemical issue. If this battle is the same as the battle of chapter 19, how can he say where the beast and the false prophet were? As if that's already happened, and now we come to this one, and while this is happening, they're already, they've already been destroyed. As if there were two battles with two conclusions. The first has already ended with the beast and the false prophet in the lake of fire, and now that's being treated as a prior event. Well, if you, if you have the King James, you have the word are, where the beast and the false prophet are, and you'll notice it's in italics, which means it was, it was added to help fill out the syntax. In the ESV, we have were added to help fill out the syntax. But if we, if we read it, it would say, where the beast and the false prophet. And that, that kind of hurts us English speakers. We, we want to know. We need more. We could say, um, into the lake of fire and sulfur, the place of the beast and the false prophet, the location. Using the word are, a present tense, or a were, past tense, we, we might want to take that and say, well, if you say are, well, that would imply that presently they are there, this being two separate battles. And if you say were, well, that could imply something similar or it could be taken differently. The point is, and here's, here's what I think we need to understand. Throughout the book, we've been reading events as John sees them. Remember, John is revealing to us what he saw. That's, the, chron- that's the, the chronology that we ought to follow. I saw, then I saw, then I saw, then I saw. Now what did John see before this? He saw this same battle culminating in the destruction of the beast and the false prophet in the lake of fire. Following that vision, he sees this vision. So when he uses the word, if you want to say are or were, the beast and the false prophet, in the previous vision... They were destroyed. The same place that they were in the previous vision is the same place that the dragon is cast in this vision. It's an apocalyptic letter. It uses symbols and pictures that are not meant to be taken in, in, in our modern use of the term literal. Think of it this way. This is, this is what helps me. In this book, we have met the enemies of God in a certain order. In chapter 12, we met the dragon. Then in chapter 13, we met beast 1 and beast 2. Later on, we found out beast 2 was the false prophet. So you've got dragon, beast, false prophet. The unholy trinity, if you will. Then in chapter 17, we met the manifestation of the realm of that wicked work, the whore, Babylon. So that's dragon, beast, false prophet, Babylon. Now as we've seen destruction come in every vision of the end... We've seen them depart, uh, exit the stage in the same way that they came, but reversed. So it would be dragon, beast, false prophet, Babylon. All right, go back to where you came from. Babylon, beast, false prophet, dragon. They go right back out the same way that they came in. So what did we see in the previous battle? We saw the beast and the false prophet cast into the lake of fire. Now we see the dragon cast in the lake of fire. Where's Babylon? Well, we, we saw her destroyed in chapter 18. There's, there's a reversal in the way that they're introduced and then destroyed. It's not two different battles. It's two visions of the same 
battle. When John uses the language of this reference to the place of the beast and the false prophet, he's not referring to a previous battle, but to the previous vision he saw of the same battle. In that sense, and are or were, if you pay attention to the verbiage in the Revelation, especially in this chapter we just read, and this is sort of nerdy, but when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released, that's future, will come out to deceive the nations, to gather them for battle, then all of a sudden their number is. Well, that's present. And then they marched. It's like he's watching it. He saw something future, and then he begins to watch it. The point being, the verbiage in this book, because it's apocalyptic, if you just follow that, it could leave you in a big mess. But it's, it's meant to be... Uh, it follows the traditional apocalyptic language. If we put these, all of this together, here's the point. Verse, verses 1 to 6, we saw the church age. And then now we see the conclusion of the church age. The end of the age will come when Satan is released and goes forth to deceive the nations to gather them for war and mounts his final attack against the church in an attempt to usurp God's throne. At which point Christ will return and destroy every enemy and rescue His people. Now listen to another passage of Scripture that is very often foggy from the epistles and see if you can notice the correlation. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 to 12. Let no one deceive you in any way for that day, that being the day of the Lord, will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way." And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of His mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of His coming, the day of the Lord. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. I would say that's saying what we've been seeing throughout the Revelation. Now you say, well, what about the, the Antichrist? He's going to be the leader of the European Union. Exactly. It's not there. Historically, the church has not expected an Antichrist figure to rise to power. That's not the way these texts have been understood. The enemy of our souls is Satan. And he uses all manner of wickedness and deception against the church. So then, what can we draw out of this? This, what we just read, is what God has covenanted to do for you. Psalm 132, verses 13 and 14. For the Lord has chosen Zion... He has desired it for His dwelling place. And there's a quote from the Lord. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. You see, God desires His people. 
He desires to be with His people and to dwell in the midst of His people. He's going to bring all of these things to pass for His namesake and that He might dwell in the midst of His people. They will glorify Himself in the midst of His people as He judges His enemies who have come against His people. The hardship that might come upon the church at any time and in any place to God is a worthy means to glorify Himself and take for Himself a people. He's covenanted to bring all of this to pass that we might be with Him forever. Psalm 48, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made Himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, the city, they were astounded. They were in panic, they took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there, anguish as of a woman in labor. The church is the place where God displays His power. God is a fortress in His church for His church because the church is His kingdom on the earth. This is where He makes His power known. This is where His his citizens pay Him honor and do His homage and follow His Word. He loves His church. And this is where He glorifies Himself. Psalm 50 verse 2, Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. He's going to make it known in the midst of His people. It's through the church in this age that God displays His power and strength. And He does this as we suffer and endure. Because the only way that we can suffer and endure is because of Him. Natural men can't do this. Natural people would never endure suffering for the sake of something they've never seen with their own eyes. We have the Spirit of God. When the saint endures persecution for the sake of the Gospel and for the sake of Christ, that's evidence the Spirit of God is strengthening them. It displays His power. There are some who would say that the way that God will show His power in the present age is by exalting His people in the present age, over the nations. Things will get better and better. God will give His people a prominent place in the world for a while so that the nations will see how good it is to be a child of God and they'll join themselves to God. Those people were the first century Jews that Jesus repeatedly corrected and reminded His disciples, no, you're going to suffer. You're going to be like your master. Remember, they continue to continually ask, will, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? They didn't ask that question after the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and brought to mind all of the things that Christ had taught about the kingdom. Then they got it. Oh, we're going to suffer. Now we understand. God shines forth in power through His church as she endures suffering for, his, for Him. Because that can only happen through the power of His Spirit. And when it reaches its climax, Christ will return, vanquish all of His enemies, destroy the devil in hell. God has covenanted to do this for His people. 
So then, we should be optimistic, but we must also be realistic. We must be optimistic, but we should also be realistic. Now, there are some people who would say, what you just said right there, that's not faith. They would say that realism is somehow contrary to faith. That we ought not to look at what we see, but just look with faith. Just just believe. I would argue that as Christians, what we are to do is to look at what we see with eyes of faith. And that any so-called faith that's not rooted in exegesis of Scripture is not actually faith. It's speculation. You can say all day long, well, I just believe in faith. But if God didn't say it, that's not faith. Your mind's telling you untrue things. Realistic optimism, which we learn from the Scriptures. The people of God have always suffered. We are strangers and sojourners in this world. This world is not our home. And we are the church militant. We are the church encamped. The seed of the serpent has always persecuted the seed of the woman. Now there are some nations like our own that have allowed safety and security for Christians for a time, but that's the exception, not the rule. We don't legislate based on exceptions. We see this as Christians. We see it in the Word. We see it before our eyes. We don't ignore it. We see it. And at the same time, we can't allow what we see to tear away at a true biblical Optimism, which sees Christ as reigning now, the gospel as advancing now, that death for us is entrance into Emmanuel's land. That's optimism. That's spiritual optimism as well as realism. As it was with Christ, we endure suffering for the joy that's set before us. Suffering is the reality. Joy is the optimism. We know what is to come, and so we press through. So we should be optimistic, but we must also be realistic. Rooted in biblical revelation. Secondly, as we endure, we must look for help. As we endure, we look for help. Realistic optimism forces us to look for help. Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Christ the Lord is our help. He is our refuge. There is no other. Church, in the end... Jesus is the only one that's going to come for us. He's the only one that's going to help us. He's all we've got. We look for help. We look to the one, the only one, who has promised and covenanted, I will come to your help. I will. We keep our eyes fixed upon Him. Nevertheless, when He does come, will He find faith on earth? 
We see in these verses that the power of Christ's salvation and protection of His people is paralleled with His power in judgment and destruction. This final battle is going to usher many millions to the judgment and to the lake of fire. And so if Christ is to find you believing when He comes, then that means you must be believing before He comes. When He comes, it's too late. When Christ returns, that's the end of faith. Faith is over at that point. All eyes will see Him. All people will acknowledge Him. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord on that day. And when He returns, that confession is not going to make any change, any alteration in your eternal state. Because everybody's going to make it. There He is. Faith is over. It's too late at that point. Is your faith in Christ and in Christ alone now? Not merely for fire insurance. Yes, it does protect you from hell. But but now, reconciliation with God. God's wrath hangs over the heads of the unbeliever even now. Is Christ your King? Now. That will be evidenced by loving adoration and obedience. That will be evidenced by increasing conformity to His Word and His ways and His will. It will be evidenced by growth in grace if He's your King. Can you say in all honesty that on a regular basis, day in and day out, yes, my heart and my mind know not perfectly, yes, I waver, yes, I wonder, but on a regular basis I am reminded Jesus Christ is my only hope in life and in death. He's all I've got. Is that, is that the reality that you live in? Is that who you are? Does that constitute your existence in the present world? He's all I've got. Is that you? When the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? When the Son of Man comes, will He find you believing? If not, today is the day of salvation. Christ has come to us today in His Word, through His servants. He's come to call you to Himself. The Father, this is what what we know. We don't know when this day will be. But what we do know is that today, the Father is still offering terms of peace. He's still holding out the option of peace. His hands are held out all day long. There's peace. There's peace. There's peace to be had if you'll come to Christ. But there's going to come a time when the Father says, Enough. Go. And it'll be too late. Don't leave here an enemy of God. You might have come here an enemy of God. Don't leave an enemy of God. We don't know when the thousand years will be completed. We don't know. Throw yourself at the mercy of Christ. Let's pray.